0: Good morning. Hey, that was, that was solid. Usually, usually, you know, I have to play that game in my head, and I'm like, am I going to shame them and tell them to do it again? or Not today. That was great. Yeah, you were you're warmed up. That's fantastic. Uh, for those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John, and I'm the pastor here. And we are studying our way through Galatians. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, that would be awesome. One of the key things that we're learning or one of the key reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter Was because he wanted the Christians in Galatia to be stable in their faith and to develop the discernment to be able to tell the difference between what is true and what is a lie or an addition to the truth or a distortion of the truth. And I was reminded of how important that is this week, how important it is for us as Christians to be able to tell the difference between what is actually from God and what is not from him. Because today, this week, it felt like we really kicked off this next election cycle. <laughs> and it's going to be a doozy. We had the first Republican debate. And first of all, I want to say, just to ease your your nerves, if you have those, I want you to know that in our church, we don't talk about politics. All right, We don't discuss it from the stage. We don't endorse candidates. We don't endorse parties. We don't do any of that. What we do is we teach the scripture, and then you can take the scripture and apply it to your political opinions and decisions there but we don't do that so please don't (laughs) but we don't do that and I won't do that but what but watching that debate and going through it just reminded me how vitally important it is for us and as we go into this next year where things are going to be wild okay as we go into this next year how important it is for us as believers to know what the scripture says about things and then run all of the opinions and ideas and all of that through that filter Not through the filter of what a particular party says or what we like or what resonates with us. We run it through the scriptural filter. And that is developing discernment. Knowing what the truth is. So when you hear something from someone that may sound good or may have elements of the truth or may be using the truth as a foundation for this other idea, when we hear that divergent idea, we recognize it right away. Um, A couple of years ago, you know, we have uh, obviously musicians in the band and um, we love talking about the guitar players in particular, love talking about guitars and Josh gets irritated with us um, talking about guitars or, or gear or other things like that. And I love working on guitars. If you've been around, you know that. Um, and uh, Jimmy um, Smith, who, who's not here today, but uh, usually is playing guitar for us, usually over here in the corner. Um, he had a buddy that, that came across a steel on a guitar. It was a special edition Gibson Les Paul. They only made a few of these. And he came across it and got an absolute screaming deal on this. And he wanted, but it was a little bit awkward to play. It needed to be set up. And so he asked Jimmy if I could set it up for him. And I love doing that for friends. I said, sure. So Jimmy brought the guitar in one Sunday, and he opens it up. And I'm like, wow, that is, I mean, beautiful. And Jimmy was like, yeah, isn't it great? I was like, yeah, but that's not real. (laughs) And he he said, what? I said, yeah, here, let me know. I picked it up and I sat down and I played it for a second. And he was like, he was like, what are you talking about? I said, I said, Jimmy, this is not a real Gibson. He said, it's not. I said, how much did he pay for it? And he told me what the guy paid for. I was like, it's definitely not a real Gibson. <laughs> like, you did not pay this much for it. And, and I, just looking at it, I could, I could look at it. I could feel it. I played so many Gibsons. I know that, well, I was, I was going to play Gibson today. But anyway, so I, but I played so many. I know what they feel like. I know what they sound like. I know what it is. I know when I look at it. It's the way they dress the fret ends and all kinds of, all, the, the binding going up over the fret ends and stuff. All kinds of stuff like that. I just knew right away there's no way that this can be a real Gibson. And he's like, my buddy's going to be devastated. And I was like, you don't have to tell him. <laughs> but, I mean, you don't have to break his heart or anything. But if he goes to sell it, he needs to know because um, it's illegal to sell that, you know, because it's, it's counterfeit merchandise. But but I was like, I'll take it anyway. I'll take it, and I'll set it up and do all that. So I took it back home to my shop, and I took the strings off, and I pulled the pickups out, and sure enough, the, the electronics were not right. And, and right inside the pickup cavity, there was a Chinese stamp, symbol stamped right in the middle. I was like, oh, you didn't even try to hide it. <laughs> so... But the but the reason that I knew that that guitar was fake the second I had seen it and the, the second that I put it in my hands is because I've played so many and I've seen so many. I know what the real thing looks like. So when I see a fake, I know it right away. The same thing is true for us as Christians, that we, the way that we determine, the way that we develop the discernment to know whether an idea is truly from God or not is by becoming so familiar with the gospel and the scripture that we recognize the, the wrong thing when we see it. And now that's on us, that's on you and me. We have to go and we have to get that and we have to develop that knowledge. We have to develop that wisdom. We have to immerse ourselves in scripture so much that we're not fooled because it's so easy for people to take biblical ideas or biblical concepts and take them and twist them five degrees or add this to it or change that or try to tap into a biblical idea that they run too far with. And particularly when we're hitting election cycles, listen, people are doing this all over the place. So you gotta have discernment you have to be aware and when it came to the Galatians the reason Paul's writing to them is because he had told them what the gospel was the truth of the gospel the facts of the gospel but then people came in behind him for those of you that may be just joining us today in this for the first time people came in immediately behind him and said oh yeah 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 that sure yeah faith in Jesus yes But also you have to become a Jew. These are Gentile. These are non-Jewish believers. Also you have to become a Jew. You got to get circumcised. Sorry. And I hate to do this to you guys, but we're going to talk about circumcision a lot today. So if you don't know what that is, talk to your parents. Anyway, but he, (laughs) sorry about that. It's, you can't sidestep, it's here, right? You can't sidestep it. But anyway, but that was the, that was the symbol. And so that these, we call them Judaizers today. These Judaizers came in and they said, yes, faith in Jesus for salvation, but also you have to become Jewish, so you have to get circumcised and you have to follow the law. So it was the truth plus something else. And Paul writes back to them to give them the truth again so that they have the filter to run these ideas through so they don't get duped and they don't get fooled by these people again. And so that's what he's doing. We have spent some time talking about the Galatians. Again, if you weren't with us, you can go watch those messages. But um, the Galatians are actually um, descendants of the Celtic Gauls from the, the border of France and Germany who had migrated over into this part of, um, uh, of Asia Minor. And um, they were an oddity because they had blonde hair while everybody else had dark hair. They just seemed like outsiders. And historically, they were very... Uh, they were very sort of transient and um, nomadic and kind of even with their ideas, Julius Caesar called them fickle and not to be trusted. <laughs> so they changed their, their minds a lot, could be blown um, by the wind in any direction. And so Paul saw that that had happened. And so he writes back to him. and He's like, I can't believe you fell for this. Let me give it to you again. So we learned about the Galatians. Last week, we talked a lot about Paul, about his story and how he came to faith in Jesus and and, um, how he started his ministry and why he was the perfect guy to be delivering this message. Today, we're really going to dive into the issue that he's dealing with and why this is such a big deal. Um, So we're at the uh, beginning of chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2. And he's been walking through a little bit of his timeline, so we'll we'll catch everybody up. But um, at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. He had just gone up to Jerusalem. He talked about, we talked about that last week. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, which is interesting. And we'll talk about why that's interesting. All right. So for timeline, if you're, if you're a little hazy on this, Paul, he converts, he accepts Christ He spends three years doing some teaching and ministry, but developing his doctrine. Jesus teaching him directly. He says he was taught by the revelation of Jesus. And so he teaches him the gospel. Jesus teaches him the gospel. And then after three years, he goes to Jerusalem, which is where all the sort of head honchos of Christianity are. Peter, James, John, all those guys are there in Jerusalem. And he goes up there to affirm and to to make sure that he's checking against the the authority, you know, all of that to make sure he's not just some wild guy out in the, the middle of nowhere. So he goes up to Jerusalem in visit one after three years of uh, faith in Jesus. And then he goes back to Tarsus and then to Antioch for, depending on, the the, the timeline is a little muddy, um, probably about 11 years. So when he says after 14 years, I think that he means 14 years after his conversion, after accepting Christ, which is three years before the first Jerusalem visit, then 11 more years until the final, until this Jerusalem visit. And if that timeline is right, then what, the reason he's going up to um, Jerusalem is to deliver some money that they raised back in um, Antioch for the, the Christians in Jerusalem who are in the middle of a famine. So there was a famine that was prophesied. So Paul started collecting money, and then he took the money up to Jerusalem to help support the Christians that were there. It was a really, really good great act of generosity. Um, But that's probably the visit that's happening here, which means this is happening, this visit's happening in like 47 uh, AD, most likely. All right. So he takes with him, when he goes to Jerusalem this time, he takes with him Barnabas, who is a Jewish believer. And he also takes with him Titus, who is a Gentile believer. This is on purpose. This is strategic. Now, Why would Paul, when he goes to Jerusalem, choose to take with him a Jewish believer, Barnabas, who they would have known and been very familiar with, and Titus, a Gentile believer that they would not have been familiar with, but that Paul started investing in and discipling? That's a strategic decision. So let's give a little bit of history. Some of you are going to be very familiar with this. Some of you may be new to Scripture, and so you're learning this as we go. So I want to explain the history and start way, way back when God decided that he was going to set aside for himself a people. He was going to create for himself a nation. And the purpose in creating this nation or this people was to reveal to them who he was directly, to reveal to them who they were, and to show them how he wanted them to live and honor him. And so he set aside a family whose the the man was Abram. His name was changed to Abraham. So Abram, Abraham, same guy. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is unconditional. God actually puts Abraham to sleep while God does the covenant stuff. So that Abraham doesn't have to do anything to hold up his end of the bargain. This is all God's pure, unconditional promise to Abraham. And he promises them that he's going to have descendants. And he promises them that he's going to inherit a particular land. And he promises them that through him, all nations will be blessed. And then he begins building this family, building this nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. But even in this time, the the symbol of their relationship with God was circumcision. That was the symbol of their relationship with God. But even a Gentile could become a Jew, but they would have to submit to circumcision in order to do it. So even, even at this time, it wasn't exclusive-exclusive. A Gentile could become a Jew, but they would have to submit to circumcision like the Jews had. Okay? So they, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph ends, ends up being the reason that the nation of Israel, which is now called the nation of Israel, moves into Egypt. Okay? When he forgives his brothers and there's a famine and they come and move to Egypt. That's the reason they end up in Egypt. Over the course of time in Egypt, they end up enslaved. Pharaohs change, situations change. They end up in enslaved people in Egypt. And God, through the miracle of the plagues and the leadership of Moses, leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the, into the desert. They're supposed to go into the promised land. They don't go into the promised land. They're, they wander in the desert for 40 years. But while they're in the desert... God gives them another covenant, another another agreement, but this one is conditional. This one is received by Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant, and the, the, the essence of this is this is what we know as the law. You do this, and I will do that. You behave this way, and I will return favor in this way. This is where, where we have things like the, the dietary restrictions. This is where we have clothing restrictions. This is where we have feasts and festivals that they have to observe. This is where we have uh, uh, regulations about how they're supposed to um, give their money. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to tithe and support the priest. They're supposed to p- support the poor. They're supposed to save up money so that they can take time off for the feasts and the festivals. There's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that exist. But this one is conditional. And what the law did is it showed, first and foremost, it showed the people who were under it the character of God. They, they learned who he was, what he wanted from their life. And you can see the principles within all of those rules. You know, he wanted them to be generous and he wanted them to rest and take time to worship. And he wanted, he had all these rules. And then within that also was a system of sacrifices, There was a system of sacrifices which were designed to show people, a couple things, show people their sin and that sin needed to be paid for, that their sin needed to be atoned for. But ultimately, the law showed everybody who was under it that they were totally incapable of keeping it. That all these rules and all these regulations and all these expectations that God would have on us to earn salvation if we could do it are unrealistic and nobody can do it which is why they would have this system of sacrifices because they knew sin had to be atoned for because they couldn't keep this law perfectly. And that that culminated every single year on a day called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and would make a sacrifice on behalf of all of the people to atone for all of the sin that hadn't been covered consciously, covered all the sin of the people. Yet they continued to have to do that year after year after year after year because the blood of an animal sacrifice could never cover or atone for man's sin. It was insufficient as a sacrifice. And so this whole system just showed all the people, yes, they were learning about God. Yes, they were learning about his character and his nature, and they were following these rules and trying to honor and please him in it. But ultimately, the law showed them that their effort was not sufficient and that sacrifices of of animals or whatever were not sufficient. And it pointed them forward to a sufficient sacrifice to come, the Messiah, the Savior who would come would live without sin, would offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for them, and then sin would be atoned for. And that's who Jesus was. Jesus was the Son of God, fully God and fully man at the same time. And when he gave his life sinless on the cross in our place, he was the perfect atoning sacrifice in our place. And we can have salvation We can receive his righteousness, not by any work, not by keeping the law or keeping a set of rules. We can receive salvation. God will give us his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We place our faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. And we can receive the grace of God. And because we have received the perfect atoning sacrifice, we are now under faith and no longer under the law. We don't need to be under the law. The law has done its job. Yet we still, we'll get to this, but we still continue to learn from the law and it still guides our, our, our life when we look. In, in, but we're not under it, okay? We're not under the law. We are under grace. And so why and and so because of that the sign of the covenant the sign of the the law of circumcision and this was the hot button issue this was the key front issue because we are no longer under the law we no longer have to submit to that to identify ourselves with Christ physically paul says we now have circumcision of the heart that's the word he that's the term he uses we put our faith in Christ and we don't need the outward sign anymore to confirm that we are in grace, that we are in grace. And so even at this, so this, this um, the, the, the Judaizers, okay, at the time, Paul has given them this message of free grace through Christ. He's given them this message, this is great news. You're no longer under the law. You are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him, you become a child of God. And you don't have to be circumcised, and you don't have to keep the Sabbath, and you don't have to tithe, and you don't have to eat this particular diet, and you don't have to wear these kinds of clothes, and you don't have to offer sacrifices, and you don't have to do any of this stuff anymore. He, he, he shares this great message of freedom in Christ. And the Judaizers come back in on the backside of this, and they say, oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. faith in Jesus, yes. But you also have to be circumcised and become a Jew. And that's the message that they're saying. In fact, in um, Acts 15, this is, I believe, a little later. They have this big you know, council in Jerusalem in like uh, 50 AD. They have this big council where Paul and the apostles and everybody's in Jerusalem. And, and they're trying to settle this issue and, and answer this question. And you can hear the Judaizers um, their position very, very clearly. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and they say, um, unless you are circumcised, according to the law, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the position of the Judaizers. It is Jesus plus circumcision. And for them, it, it wasn't even at that point a question of if the Gentiles could be saved, but the question was, how are the Gentiles saved? Do they put their faith in Jesus or do they put their faith in Jesus and get circumcised? What is it? Now, this is something where Paul is going to draw a line in the sand and he absolutely will not relent on this because it's like an avalanche. If if the one thing breaks, the whole thing breaks. And so here's the here. Come back to the question. Why do you bring Titus with you? (laughs) Because Titus is the test. Titus is not circumcised. He's a Greek. He's accepted Christ as his Savior. He clearly, has, he clearly has the leadership of the Holy Spirit in his life. He's accepted Jesus by faith. Are they going to make him get circumcised? That's the question. He's the test. And so um, let's go to verse 2. And I went up by revelation... And that, that means that he, did, he wasn't compelled to go. He wasn't told to go. He wasn't requested to go. God led him to go. So whether this is just God saying, hey, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Take Barnabas and Titus with you. Or whether this maybe the revelation he's talking about is the prophecy about the famine. So maybe he's saying by revelation of the, the famine prophecy, I'm going up to take this money. Either way, his point is that God led him to go. He wasn't compelled to go or forced to go. I went up by revelation. And communicated to them the gospel which I preached, or which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Okay, a couple of things to address. First he says, he preached, he told them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And we know what that is. The gospel he preached among the Gentiles is salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's it. No works, no addition to that, just faith. All right, so that's that's the message. He says that he did it privately to those who were of uh, what did he say? To those who were of reputation. So this means that he privately went to the apostles, the, the leaders of the church. He didn't go to the synagogue and hold up Titus and say, what will you do with Titus? He didn't, he didn't go cause a scene or try to put him between a rock and a hard place. He didn't try to call them out or try to make a fool of them. He went to them privately and he said, here is the gospel that I am preaching. And this is to those who were of repute. So the, the, the key leaders in the church at the time, you've got, of course, Peter is one of the, the key leaders. John is one of the key leaders. Um, the leader of the church in Jerusalem was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, it can get a little confusing in Scripture, but there are multiple people that have the same name because Scripture is real life. And so when you read, like, in the Gospels about Peter, James, and John, um, Jesus' closest inner circle— This James, the brother of Jesus, is not the same as the James from the Gospels, who is one of Jesus' inner circle. He was martyred. That James was martyred well before this happened, like five or six years before this meeting happened. Uh, This is James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus during his ministry. But then when Jesus was crucified and was resurrected, His brother met the resurrected Jesus and he said, it is true. (laughs) And he believed in Jesus and went all in and eventually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So so uh, uh, so uh, Paul goes to these folks and probably some more, but a core group of people privately shares what he's been teaching with them, what's been revealed to him by Jesus. And he says, um, he says, lest. By any means, I might run or had run in vain. Now, I don't think that, that Paul is at all concerned about his message being wrong because he, he received it directly from Jesus. So he is confident that this is the truth and that this is the gospel. His concern is not that he's wrong. His concern is that they are going to disagree with him and it's going to make his ministry ineffective, that he's going to end up in a, in a battle, in a fight between him and the apostles because he's going to stand on this gospel truth and he wants to know that they hold the same gospel truth, too, so that he's not butting heads with them constantly. So that he can go and take this ministry to the Gentiles, and they can focus on ministry to the Jews, and they can be effective together. That's why he shares this with them privately. And this is the question. He, what are you guys going to do with Titus? Are you going to say that he has to get circumcised or not? And so here's what happens. Uh, verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't make him get circumcised, and neither Paul nor Titus were convinced that they should. All right? He was not, com- he was not compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of a false, because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So there were people that had snuck in, these Judaizers that had snuck in to spy, spiritual spies, to look at their freedom in an effort to get them to turn back to the law. Verse five, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. This is so important to Paul. So important. He understands that that what he's facing is a pivotal moment in history. And that if he allows one crack in the dam to form, then it is going to be a flood of legalism and drawing people back into the law. He knows that he cannot relent on this one point. Because if he relents on this one point, the whole thing is gone. And so he absolutely will not back down. And why won't he back down? He says to the Galatians, it's so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I love this because Paul says, I won't back down and it's for your good. Because I'm not going to let you be fooled, and I'm not going to let you be deceived, and I'm not going to let you be drawn into into Judaizing. I'm not going to let you be drawn back in under the law. I'm not going to let you be drawn into legalism. And so I'm going to hold my ground on this thing, and I will not relent for you. And I believe also by association for you and me so that we don't get drawn up into legalism. We don't get drawn up into thinking that we could somehow earn our salvation when we can't. And understand that it is only the work of God in Jesus Christ that allows us to be saved. It is vitally important. I think it's interesting that he says, what the wording, and, and this, this is very specific. These spiritual spies that were coming in and trying to, to, to take away their freedom, he said that they might bring us into bondage. He so, said, well, no, it was, bringing, it was bringing Titus into bondage. No, that's not how Paul sees it. No, if you bring Titus into bondage, if you bring him under and you make him get circumcised, then all of us are now back under the law. If, if we're responsible to that one point of it, then we're responsible to the entire thing. He says that elsewhere in one of his letters. And so this is a floodgates issue, and he cannot let there be a crack in that. And so he says, no, absolutely not. Otherwise, they will bring us under bondage. Why does it matter so much? I mean, because you might look at something like that and be like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, so if he puts his faith in Jesus, but then they make him get circumcised, he's still saved, right, because he put his faith in Jesus. Sure, but where does it stop? There's a bigger issue at stake here. And the issue is freedom. Freedom is at stake. This is one of the reasons um, that Galatians was the most important letter in the Bible to Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. When the Catholic Church had grown and grown and grown and become this big monstrosity <laughs> and swallowing the world... But where they did not give people access to the scripture to understand what it said. And they had imposed systems and rules and all kinds of things on top of faith. And so in the in the church it was, well, yes, you. You, you put your faith in Jesus, yes, but you also have to confess to a priest. Yes, you, you put your faith in Jesus, but you also have to, you really want to be forgiven for your sins. You have to purchase these indulgences. And, and yes, it's really, and, and so it was Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And then the the leadership in the church had become so corrupt and using all of that for their own benefit that finally when people were able to read the scripture in their own language, and this happened right after the printing press was created, and they could actually print the scripture instead of in Latin, they could print the scripture in German in that area, in people's native tongue, and they could distribute it to people. And people started reading the scripture for themselves and going... That's not what this says. What you're telling us isn't what this says. And Martin Luther's concern is that the the Catholic Church was taking away people's freedom. They were doing the same thing that the Judaizers had done 1,500 years before. It had crept back into the church, which Paul desperately wanted to keep from happening. But it crept back into the church, and Martin Luther and the other reformers stood up and said no. We're, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to allow this to happen anymore. It was, like a, it was a moment much like Paul in, in his trip to Jerusalem. They saw legalism. It was faith in Jesus plus the sacraments. That's what saves you. And their source of authority was the scripture plus the traditions of the church. And Martin Luther and the others said, no, no pluses, no pluses. They stood up and they said, "No, we won't stand for this." And this is a quote from one of um, Martin Luther's from his commentary on Galatians, which actually a series of um, messages. But this is what he said. However, they wanted something else. Talking about this part, this uh, portion of Galatians we're reading. However, they wanted something else to enslave Paul altogether with his entire doctrine. Therefore, he didn't yield, not even for a second. In the same way. We offer the papists, those are the, the, that's the Catholic Church, we offer the papists everything we have, and even more than that. Only that we reserve the freedom of conscience that we have in Jesus Christ. We will not tolerate our conscience to be bound to any work. We will not tolerate anything that will tell us if we do this or that, we are righteous. Or if we don't do this or that, we are damned. We will be more than happy to eat the same meats they eat, we will keep the same feasts and fasting days just as long as they will allow us the freedom of our conscience. At this point, we will not compromise, but we will be rebellious and stubborn against them. Otherwise, we will lose the truth of the gospel. And this is what Paul said. He said, why do we stand our ground so that the truth of the gospel may continue with you? And so we have to stand our ground on this. It matters. Salvation is, uh, is by God's grace alone, through, Jesus, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It's no other work. It's no other addition. It's no pre-qualification or after-qualification. It's none of that stuff. It is by faith alone. And today, you're going to see this, and you have to have the discernment to, to know it when you see it. But you'll see it in other churches, other denominations, and other things that look like Christianity and aren't. When people try to add to that truth. You'll see things like it's, it's faith plus baptism. Or it's faith plus church membership. Or it's faith plus this particular spiritual gift. Or it's faith plus repentance of this particular sin. Or it's faith plus, ready for this? It's faith plus acceptance of the entire Bible. Now, our any of those things bad? Baptism, church membership, spiritual gifts, are those bad things? No, of course not. They're, they're good, but they are not required for salvation. They're not required to receive salvation, and they're not required to maintain salvation. It is the grace of God we receive by, through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is the grace of God that maintains our salvation, not our works. It's not like it wasn't works to begin with, but now it is works. That's not how it works. Sorry. <laughs> it's faith and faith alone. And we talk about this a lot, and I hope you don't feel like we talk about it too much, because here's the thing. This has to be the foundation on which everything else is built. Because as soon as other people start trying to add things... Once you add one, it's the floodgate. Illegalism comes in, and legalism will destroy your faith in Jesus. It'll destroy your heart and your mind and the way that he wants to lead you and change you. Paul would not relent because the the implications of this for the Christian are disastrous. It brings us into bondage instead of freedom. That's the word that he uses. Functionally, it'll crush us. Legalism brings us into behavioral bondage where we're constantly worried about what we're doing. Does it match the code that's been created for us? And so legalism says you can eat this but not that or you can drink this but not that you can wear this but not that you you can get this kind of medical care but not that kind of medical care you can get you can you can you can take in this kind of entertainment but not that kind of entertainment or no entertainment at all you can and here's what happens is you continue going you've seen this you know this you you've seen you've seen legalistic churches I'm sure where you go down that road and you go down that road and you go down that road And you end up with these isolated subcultures of conformity where people are absolutely bound by the rules and regulations that have been created around them. And that is absolutely not how you were created to live as a Christian. Now, making free will decisions on all of those things are great things about what you're going to eat or not eat eat and to bring honor and glory to God or what you're going to drink and not drink to bring honor and glory to God or how what you're going to wear or not wear to present yourself and bring honor and glory to God or what kind of entertainment you're going to take in or not take in so you bring honor and glory to God or what kind of medical care you're going to get or not get so that you bring honor and glory to God or whatever it may be. Making those decisions in your freedom is something all of us as believers need to do as we become more and more like Christ and become more and more pure. But to have them be a restriction, making a free choice is one thing. Attaching it to receiving or maintaining salvation is a totally different thing, and it's wrong. And so we need to recognize that and walk in that freedom that we have and make decisions in that freedom. Paul could have actually been accused of being a hypocrite on this issue because he also, one of his um, disciples was a guy named Timothy. And Timothy uh, his mother was a devout Jew, but his father was a Greek. So he had both in his family. Timothy was not circumcised. And so Paul, in his discussion with Timothy, actually encouraged Timothy to get circumcised. And some people might say, well, look, see, Paul thinks that you, if you, you, know, that you should get circumcised. No, what Paul told Timothy was, you're going to be doing ministry to the Jews, and it might make things easier for you if you choose to get circumcised, so that that's not a stumbling block in your ministry to the Jews. So he wasn't enforcing something on Timothy. He was encouraging Timothy to do something for a strategic reason, and then it was Timothy's choice in his free will whether he did that or not. So Paul is very consistent on this issue, even though he was accused of being inconsistent. Because legalism creates behavioral bondage, and legalism also creates emotional bondage. Constantly wondering whether you've measured up Constantly wondering whether you've done enough right or you haven't done enough wrong to earn God's pleasure and to earn salvation. That will, that will, feeling like you are living based on a scoreboard will kill you in your relationship with Jesus. The late Tim Keller put it this way. He called it an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. You'd never catch it. You never catch up. It just crushes you. And that's why you need to know that your salvation is not based on your works in any way. It is based on the work of God, offering grace through Jesus Christ. And if you have put your faith in Jesus for salvation, you are saved. And now, there is a lot of work that God wants you to do, but it doesn't shake that foundation. It determines what's built on top of that foundation. It determines how faithful you are to God. It determines rewards later. Yes, all of that. It all matters. It matters greatly. Amen. But it has nothing to do with the foundation. The foundation is there through faith. Before you understand how God wants you to live, and we're getting there, we're moving that way in the series as we walk through Galatians. Before you understand how God wants you to live, It is imperative that you understand the gospel foundation on which you stand. And we must refuse to relent on it, just as Paul did. So we don't end up going the same course that ultimately the church did go. And say, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love and this firm foundation that we have in you. For knowing, knowing, knowing that there is no way possible for us to earn salvation. Never has been, never will be. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it. But in your grace and your kindness, You made a way, you did the work for us and sent your son, Jesus. Jesus, you humbled yourself and you came here to earth, fully God and fully man. And you taught us so much and showed us what it looks like to live in a way that is honoring to God. You lived completely without sin. And then willingly offered yourself as the final, full, complete, atoning sacrifice on the cross. Doing for us what we could not do. You were placed into the grave. And on the third day rose again in power and victory, conquering sin and conquering the grave. And in your resurrection, we have confidence to know that as you were raised, we too will be raised. As you have life, we have life. And we know that the only way that we can receive that, not by doing any work on our own, not before this moment and not after it, the only way that we can receive that gift of grace is through faith in you, placing our faith and trust in you, For many of us in the room, God, we did that a long time ago. We did it years ago, months ago. We placed our faith in you. And when we did, you set a foundation under us that can't be shaken. God, I pray right now that you would be moving in the hearts of anyone who's with us today who's never done that before. They've been running on the treadmill, maybe trying to trying to earn it, trying to be a good person, trying to earn up or trying to earn their way to you, trying to do enough good things to outweigh the bad. Trying to balance the scale in their favor. And I pray, God, right now you make it so clear in their heart that they can't do that. That we are all sinful and we're all fallen. We've all fallen short of your glory. And there's no way that we could earn our way back to you or that we could compensate for that. And that as they sit in that, that's a, that's a tough place to sit, but as they sit in that right now, they, they see at the same time the love that you have for them offering Jesus Christ on the cross in their place. And that you move in their heart right now, God, that in this moment they're going to place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and receive your grace. We're gonna place their faith in Jesus and receive your grace. And I pray for them as they make that decision and confess that to you as we as we have made that decision, many of us in the room, that now we sit in this moment where we recognize the grace that you've given to us that we didn't earn it. And in response to that and the freedom that we have, our response right now is to say, God, we love you with all of our heart. You've you've saved us and you've called us into your family and you have eternity waiting for us. And so now we wanna turn our entire life over to you freely, willingly, not because it's required, but because we want to, because we love you. And so we wanna turn our life over to you and we ask God in this moment that you show us what it looks like to bring you honor and glory, that you use the scripture to do that, that you use the law to do that and to show us who you are and to reveal yourself to us, to reveal to us who we are and how you wanna change us and transform us into the image of Jesus and that in this moment out of gratitude in the freedom that we know we have, that we would give our life over to you And say, God, we want to follow you and we want to serve you and we want to give you everything we have in our life. We want to be transformed as completely as possible into the image of Jesus to look like him. As you change our character and you change our behaviors and you change our thoughts and you change our emotions and our feelings, all of this stuff, and you start working it together to transform us into the people that you created us to be. What a great and incredible process. And God, we we stand here right now and together we express thanks that Paul wouldn't relent on this issue. That Christians throughout history wouldn't relent on this issue. So that we we wouldn't be pulled back under the law. So that we wouldn't be pulled back under legalism. But that we could understand what it truly means to walk with you and follow you in freedom. And so we thank you for that today. We want to express our worship to you, our love for you, and our thankfulness for you. As we pray that you hear that from our heart and our decisions and everything that happens, not only in the next few minutes, but for the rest of this day and the rest of this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.